It's Muppeturgy with an uncanny episode about the Cleo Lane episode of The Muppet Show. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm David Levy. I'm so glad you're here with us. Today with me are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. And if you follow us on social media, you might remember that Adam went to Disney World a couple of weeks ago. So as we are recording this, he is rising with the resistance or something and therefore not here. We're going to be splitting Adam's duties this week. Uh, I'm going to give you some context for this week's episode. This week we are talking about Season 2, Episode 16 of The Muppet Show. It was produced uh, November 8th to 10th, 1977, which means it was being made as previous Muppeturgy guest Amy Spaulding was being born. So that's cool. Oh, happy birthday, Amy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It aired uh, in the UK on January 15th, 1978, and in New York on May 15th, 1978. On the New York schedule, it was followed by Good Times, Baby I'm Back, MASH, One Day at a Time, and Lou Grant. And elsewhere on the dial, uh, Merv Griffin's guests included Muppet Show guests Dom DeLuise and Paul Williams. Uh, There was a special called The Fabulous Funnies, a documentary special about the 75-year history of comic strips in America that was hosted by Carl Reiner. Huh. Yeah, it was a rerun uh, of a thing that ran in 1968. Then uh, David discovered that there was a later version of it with Lonnie Anderson. Who knew? That's how I found out it was a rerun because I went looking for it on YouTube and I couldn't find this one, but I found the Lonnie Anderson version, but that was from 1980 and talked about the 85 year history of comic strips. I was like, wait a minute. I'm (laughs) I'm not great at math. (laughs) (laughs) And among uh, the TV movies this week were Adventures of the Wilderness Family, a contemporary family discards their urban existence for life in America's Northwest. Sure. And a sweet host starring Martin Sheen and Linda Blair. A young woman is kidnapped by a mental patient. And I misread this the first time as Martin Short. And I was like, that's a very different movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a big ad for uh, Arthur Haley's Wheels starring Rock Hudson and Lee Remick. And it said, tonight, the powerful conclusion, their cars were bright and shiny. Their lives were a tangled wreck. I'd watch that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you Dame Cleo Lane, also known as Lady Dinkworth, DBE, was born Clementine Dinah Bullock in 1927 in the London suburb of Uxbridge, the biracial daughter of a Jamaican immigrant laborer and a white English farmer's daughter. Cleo showed early aptitude for singing and dancing, perhaps inherited from her father, who made a little cash on the side busking. At age 19, Cleo married a roof tiler, and they had a son. This marriage would last 11 years. In her 20s, she began to take music more seriously, and at 24, she joined a band led by jazz woodwind player John Dankworth, the Dankworth Seven, as a girl singer. This would be a turning point in many ways. In 1958, she and John would marry. This marriage would produce two more children, Alec and Jacqueline, both of whom went on to have their own careers in music. In the 1950s, Cleo also embarked upon a successful acting career in both plays and musicals, with notable appearances in the musical Valmuth in 1959 and a very successful West End revival of Showboat in 1971. In the 60s, her fame as a recording artist grew. Her song, You'll Answer to Me, hit the British Top Ten in 1961. And in 1964, she released Shakespeare and All That Jazz, where she sang new settings of famous speeches from Shakespeare set to jazz music by her husband. In the 1970s, she toured internationally, establishing her reputation in Australia, the United States, and Canada, making her the perfect guest for The Muppet Show, a beloved homegrown British star known the world over. 
Following her appearance on The Muppet Show in 1979, Cleo received an OBE from Her Majesty the Queen for services to music, and in the Queen's Birthdays Honors list in June 1997, she was made a Dame Commander of the British Empire. She would win her first, and to date only, Grammy Award in 1983 for a live album recorded at Carnegie Hall. Interestingly, Lane is the only female performer to have received Grammy nominations in the jazz, pop, and classical music categories, and she's been nominated five times in total. The 80s also found Cleo on the musical theater stage in the U.S., most notably as Princess Puffer in the original cast of The Mystery of Edwin Drood on Broadway, and as the witch in the first national tour of Into the Woods. Throughout their careers, Cleo and John committed a significant amount of time and money to the cause of music education, establishing a couple of different charities for this purpose beginning in 1969. Cleo's autobiography, Cleo, was published in 1994, and her second book, You Can Sing If You Want To, was published in 1997. She's still with us at 94 years old. John Dankworth passed away in 2010. So my knowledge of Cleo Lane is basically summed up in that one sentence I said about her work in the 80s. Uh, I didn't see her into the woods, but I knew that she did the tour. I didn't see her in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, but I do have that album. And around the time she did Into the Woods, she also did a whole album of Sondheim songs, which also produced a number of like really kind of bonkers music videos as uh, was the habit of the day, I guess. Yeah. And uh, so that's sort of the, the Cleo Lane in my mind, where she's already like a little bit more of like the grand dame than she is tooling around with the Muppets. I'm curious if either of you had pre-existing Cleo Lane feelings. I have many. <laughs> and I have none, so take it. <laughs> yeah, I. so I am a, a well-documented Rupert Holmes stan. So uh, the mystery of Edwin Drood was really formative for me. So similarly to you, David, uh, her work in the 80s is more my frame of reference. But I love her voice so, so much. I just think as a culture, we don't celebrate altos enough. And the thing is, is she's, she's got an incredible range. So like it, it, it feels reductive to call her an alto, but gosh, her lower registers. But yeah, uh, those all of those bonkers music videos are on YouTube. There are also clips of her Into the Woods, I discovered. So we can Ooh. put all of that in the show notes. Yeah, it's good nice. stuff. All right, so let's get into it. What are our overall thoughts about this episode? Michal, you want to go first? Sure, and I also don't really know what to say. <laughs> I don't fully un- understand what transpired. Uh, I... <laughs> watched this episode several times and each time I finished it and thought I yeah I don't know what I I really am looking forward to looking up more of Cleo Lane's work and hearing more of her singing especially that into the woods um I thoroughly enjoyed every time she was on screen and then other things I did not enjoy and those are my thoughts Christy It's so funny because my notes say, I almost don't know what to say about this. (laughs) You know, the highs are so high and the lows are so low. It's like whiplash inducing. There's a musical number in this that may be my favorite number of the entire season so far. But there's also a lot of nonsense. There's some badly deployed Fozzie, like we're going to get into it. But Fozzie at his absolute worst. There's some real nightmare fuel. Um, this is one that I would definitely love to have a time machine to take a second crack at. <laughs> mm. But Cleo Lane is such a warm, fun presence. And I was happy for her to be there, even though I feel like they could have used her better. So, mixed bag. I almost feel like she would have done better as a season one guest star. 
Like, so much of this episode that doesn't work is when she's not on screen. So it would have been nice to like, give her a talk spot, give her a panel discussion, give her a little more opportunity to do things. I mean, I guess they could have just given her some role in the backstage plot. Uh, and I'm not sure why they didn't, because the backstage plot... Well, it's hard to say what drags this down more. Is it the backstage plot? Is it the secondary guest star? Uh, I think we'll have lots to say about both. And so uh, I will save my thoughts on those for when we get there. Cleo Lane, 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Lane. I'm ready. So as we open, Cleo Lane is worried about the Muppets liking her. But that uh, is the least of her troubles as she's attacked by Animal, who loves her very much. Oh, I hope the Muppets like me. Like! Love! Love, Cleo Lane! Love! Oh, hey! Hate me a little, will you? Uh, at the end of that, she's saying, hate me a little, would you? <laughs> Gonzo's trumpet just escapes and flies away. This is also the first season Gonzo puppet, so the whole experience makes Gonzo just look a little sleepy that his trumpet has escaped. There was something about the, the trumpet flying off that felt very Muppet Vision 3D to me. <laughs> yeah. Too bad they didn't send us 3D glasses for this episode. Maybe next time. Statler and Waldorf are a bit shy this week, apparently. They are hiding behind the curtains uh, that are inside their box and hoping that we won't notice them and make them watch the show, I guess. And no development in the yay evolution this episode. The Muppet Show backstage! So... We have a very special guest on The Muppet Show tonight, and it's kind of derailing everything. Hey, with us tonight is one of the truly great stars. Thank you, thank you. You are too kind. <laughs> I, am, I am not kind, and you are not the star. Come and try to talk to you for a second. What? See, what? my mother is in the audience. Well? Hi, Ma! <laughs> Watch me tonight. <laughs> That's right. It's Fozzie's Ma, Emily Bear. Uh, years before her star turn in the 1987 special, A Muppet Family Christmas, she's here to watch the show. And Fozzie seems to think that that automatically entitles him to star in every single act and also usurp the role of MC. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a lady with a truly remarkable voice. Come it, come it, quick, look up there! Hmm? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Miss Cleo Lane! Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty uncomfortable. The whole fuzzy entitlement thing does not, it's not a good look for him. Um, but it all results in some wacky hijinks and some extremely uncomfortable hijinks. And it all ends with Fozzie's ma falling asleep at the end of the episode. So <laughs> Fozzie is so obnoxious this episode that I can barely bring myself to listen to him. But uh, here he is having stolen Miss Piggy's uniform and weaseled his way uh, into the Pigs in Space sketch. Captain Link Hogthrob calls for all hogs on deck for inspection and then dismisses everyone but First Mate Piggy. Uh, First Mate Piggy. Yes, sir. Stand next to me. Yes, sir. Look deep into my eyes. Yes, sir. Give us a little kiss, pork chop. Yes. <laughs> no, sir. Oh, oh, sweetheart. Oh, 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 so there are a lot of reasons to feel uncomfortable when this happens, or at least confused or intrigued. Link suddenly being excited that Piggy is now a bear, or as he asks earlier, have you shaved this morning? 
hitting on the person he thinks is Miss Piggy, but the unshaven Miss Piggy, and then getting upset at Fozzie for, quote, imposting a pig, being a pig imposter. It is a rich text. It's so funny because at the beginning of this episode of Pigs in Space, I was like, oh, wow, Link is such a good actor that he isn't going to blink. He's just going to go with it and do his part. And it doesn't matter that there's an understudy on. And then it becomes clear that actually, no, he's just a moron. And it sort of changes the meaning of the sketch as it's happening, which is sort of a neat trick. It's a neat trick. Also, there have been sketches where they've broken the fourth wall. And this is a sketch where they kind of put up an additional wall or like have half a wall up where he thinks that he is the captain of the swine trek and also tries to hit on his employee. And also it's Fozzie who's on the swine trek. Like it's, well, it's hard I don't to know apart. that he thinks he's the captain so much as he has a sketch where he gets to do this thing and he's going to do it. First, I mean, first of all, Fozzie does in fact break the fourth wall during the sketch and, and shout out to his mom. Um, <laughs> My, it's not that kind of show. Yes. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't see anything in Link's performance that made us think that Link, the actor, was not aware that he was in the sketch. Because it seemed that both Link, the actor, and Link, the character of the space captain, I wish they had different names. That would make this so much easier. Um, <laughs> but both of them seemed to believe that Fozzie was a lady pig, whether or not. Whether or not they believe it was Miss Piggy or just someone else playing the role of First Mate Piggy, again, confusing because they have the same name, but go with me here. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also clearly a bear, and it's clearly Fozzie. Is it clearly a bear? There aren't that many actors on The Muppet Show. I mean, they're on the swine trek, everyone's a pig. (laughs) Serves to reason that if he's on the swine trek, wearing a swine trek uniform, that he too is a pig. He'd, yeah, if he got that uniform with the pig decal on the front, that's they wouldn't issue that to a non-pig. Right, like, we don't know. Like, there may be some wide variance in what pigs look like. We haven't seen every pig. <laughs> Link certainly hasn't seen every pig. It's true. He's never seen a pig like this before. I just want to note, uh, I sent my mom a, a picture of my, my puppy while I was preparing for this, and Pigs in Space was on my computer in the background, and, and she texted me, oh, Pigs in Space! We all thought that was the funniest part back in the day, so apparently it killed back in the day. <laughs> I mean, I also have like really fond memories of Pigs in Space. Yeah, no, I, I, I still find it very funny for the most part, but yeah, this one this one's got layers. This one's an onion. And among those layers, too, is this is this seems to be like very much playing on the reputation of both James Tiberius Kirk and William Shatner, right? Like, Oh yeah. Like the whole idea of a a captain hitting on his crew slash elite actor hitting on his supporting actors. uh, I I think there's like a, maybe like a very specific satire going on here. I have a question related to the setup to this. So, you know, Fozzie gets the idea overhearing Piggy asking somebody to bring her uh, her Pigs in Space costume. And when she does, she sounds off to me. So my my question is, is like, is Frank doing both of the, those voices in the same sitting? Because it just, it, I don't know. Did this strike anybody else or? I would assume that the Piggy voice was pre-recorded and maybe that's why it sounded off because Frank did it without a puppet on his hand. Maybe. I don't know. 
what I thought was really neat is that in the scene that follows this, you have Piggy and Fozzie and Kermit and Link. So you have Frank and Frank and Jim and Jim all doing yeah. a four-hander scene together. Uh, <laughs> so that was really cool. And I also was like, how are they doing this? <laughs> I just sort of assumed that maybe Richard Hunt was performing Piggy since he had the most experience there. And uh, I could not guess which of the two Jim characters Jim was actually puppeteering. My goal by the end of this podcast is to be able to, to clock that sort of thing. Cause I know that like Muppet performers can watch these episodes and, and say like, Oh, that's definitely like Jim doing Kermit and it's Jerry doing link. I can tell because of the way that they move. And I'm hoping that we get good enough to do that. It's a good goal. Uh, before we move on, I want to make sure to mention that Pigs in Space this week stars the Neanderthalic Captain Link Hogthrob, the overdeveloped first mate Miss Piggy, and the tridecophobic Dr. Julia Strangepork. Uh, I learned that tridecophobia is an alternative form of triskaidecophobia, superstition around the number 13, huh. which, that, or at least that's what the first result on the internet told me. If the first result was wrong, I wouldn't be surprised. Everybody go look it up yourself. After Fozzie has managed to barge in on just about every sketch and every introduction and still complain to Kermit that he doesn't have star billing and he wasn't in the opening number, um, we arrive at Fozzie's act, finally. And because he has a special guest, he is performing a special act, and that act is phrenology. Yes, tonight, because there is a certain someone special in the audience, I will do a special act, phrenology. Friend, what? And, and, and for this demonstration, I will need a volunteer. Fuzzy, what? <laughs> what are you, you going to do? Trust me, it's for my mother. Okay, okay, gang. Friendology. The art of reading a person's fortune by feeling the bumps on his head. Fuzzy <laughs> then detects that Kermit's bumps for intelligence are tragically small, and he attempts to fix this with a mallet. This was definitely on one of the like Muppets greatest hits videos I had growing up because yep. I, I remember I, I, this like viscerally. <laughs> yeah, I, I I looked this up. It was on uh, the VHS compilation. It's the Muppets Meet the Muppets, the one that was like the purple box. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, it's funny because for the first time, the "This is for my mother" made sense to me. I thought it was just like a weird throwaway joke. Like my mother told me to hit you over the head with a mallet. Yeah. So when he talks about Kermit's bumps, are those his eyes or is it just like the actual bumps of phrenology? Oh. I, always, I always sort of took that to mean like he's running his hand over the top of Kermit's heads and he's got these two big bumpy eyes. Oh, <laughs> you got ping pong ball shaped bumps on your head. <sighs> anyway, I, don't know. I didn't realize how racist phrenology was when I saw this as a kid. It plays way different now. I mean... It was never a good science. No, but like I, I this was probably my first exposure to phrenology. So, uh, like as a concept, and I thought it like at, to me as a kid, it read like in the same vein as like someone who reads the lines on your palms. Like it sounded like nonsense hoo ha to me, but not necessarily like Nazi race science. <laughs> now I know. Yeah. Is this one of the the reasons you think it got the warning at the beginning? Oh. You know, I don't think it is, but there are a lot of candidates in this episode. Uh Yeah, I keep thinking I've found the contender in this episode, 
and then I'm never entirely sure. So this is another good one. I kind of imagine the Disney censors just like watching this with a clipboard and making a check mark every time someone does something questionable. And if it reaches a certain number of check marks, it gets like the little warning. And if it reaches a bigger number of check marks, it gets the whole screen warning. Mm-hmm. And so like, even if there's not one thing in this episode that feels like, who boy, this is like a big racist moment. It's like checks enough of the boxes that like, maybe we need that. Yeah, so this got like two points, and then the other musical numbers got like five points. So if it adds up to 12, it's got to get that long intro. Right. Yeah. I want to note also that Fozzie spends a lot of this episode asking Kermit when he's going to go on and not knowing when he's about to go on and wondering when does the bear go on, Uh, which tells us more about the inner workings of the show than it does about Fozzie. To be fair, we've seen throughout the series that the schedule seems to be fluid frequently. <laughs> right? Like, wasn't it just last week that Fozzie himself was supposed to be the opening number and didn't have his shit together, and so they kept delaying and delaying and shuffling things around? Yeah, and things went wrong because they'd been shuffled around and people were upset about it and weren't ready because they'd been told they were going to go on in the second half. But it's fluid, as you say. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? So we're going a little bit out of order this week because a lot of the show business got folded into either the backstage plot or the songs. But before we get to the song segment, let's talk about the guest puppeteer. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's very seldom that we have a guest puppeteer on the show. In fact, between you and me, it's rare that we have any puppeteers on the show. Bruce Schwartz is a puppeteer who features on two different episodes of The Muppet Show. Apparently, he received a MacArthur Fellowship in 1988 co-founded the Pasadena Yoga Co-op in 1994, and has been teaching yoga since 1998. So that's how this guy's life is shaking out. You know what? I, I live 10 minutes from Pasadena. When we started talking about this, I Googled to see if I could take a class from this guy. Sadly, his studio still exists, but he doesn't seem to be an active teacher there at the moment. I feel like once you've gotten a MacArthur Fellowship, you do what you want. Yeah. There are no rules for a certified genius. That's the thing. So, uh, this certified genius in this episode presents not one, but two guest sketches in the style of bunraku, a Japanese tradition of puppetry that features sculpted heads and hands with an emphasis on tiny details and lifelike movements. And apparently, uh, I learned this week, many popular bunraku plays featured, quote, double suicides of honor-bound lovers, is what I learned on Wikipedia. So that explains some things about what we're seeing, but not everything. So there are two little vignettes. Let's talk about them. First, there's a little ballerina. I guess it's supposed to be a girl or a teenager. She's got these freaky skeletal arms, and she does a little stretch and a couple of little exercises and then does a few little leaps while Bruce Schwartz in full view has two pinched fingers poised menacingly on the back of her neck. I hated it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of it is impressive and some of it is very convincing. And then some bits are just painfully uncanny or slow or awkward. Yeah. My initial response was, Wow, that's really impressive. Kill it with fire. (laughs) This is the sort of thing, like, a 30-second demonstration would have been cool, but it just, I don't know, like, nothing happens. And, like, she doesn't even dance enough or, like, 
dance fantastically enough to make it worth the however many minutes it gets. And then also, there's something just incredibly creepy about the way he holds her neck. Yeah. I don't know. I get the focusing on the neck thing. I was more frightened of the hands. But yeah, there were a lot of little elements that I appreciated. Like, oh, the the way that she's walking around on point looks like the way a ballerina would walk around on point. But then like that was just a tiny moment in two or three minutes. Uh, And then for the big finale of the episode, we've got a Boonraku-style sketch uh, featuring star-crossed lovers, one or both of whom may be dead, um, and both of whom are definitely being serenaded by the floating head of Cleo Lane. <laughs> but one of them may also be Cleo Lane, one of the puppets. Wait, how do you figure? Not well, the I don't know, the, the little lady puppet had sort of a similar hairstyle and a similar outfit, so I just sort of assume that... And, and, and the song that Cleo Lane sings, which we'll talk about later, is... In the first person. Right, in first person. So it's presumably the like the monologue or the interior monologue of, of that puppet. I guess. I was too busy being sad and creeped out at the same time and then being annoyed that the creepy puppets were also making me feel feelings. <laughs> yeah, I just, I know that this is a show that is not just for kids, but it is still for kids. And so an entire musical number where we watch like a woman either sobbing over her dead husband or at her husband's side as he's dying and then watch the two of them float off to heaven together. Uh, it felt out of place. It was a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely feels out of place next to, you know, a bear whacking a frog on the head with a mallet. <laughs> it does feel like a different show. I'm sure Bruce Schwartz earned that genius title. And also, it doesn't quite fit on the Muppet Show. Oh, that puppet looks so alive! Well, that's more than I can say for you! (laughs) 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 So, our first number is, is one of our many candidates for our insensitivity warning. Himbo! Yep, that's basically it. It's a bunch of Muppets hanging out on the beach. We're in a beachy locale doing the limbo. Uh, It's not a song that exists out of the show. This was an original by Derek Scott, the show's music associate. Mildred's there playing. First, I thought it was a ukulele, but it looks more like a weird guitar. It might be a people-sized ukulele, but a Muppet-sized guitar. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a scale thing happening. But, I mean, always happy to see Mildred. Oh, yeah. So this is our second Hawaiian-themed musical number in a row, which made me wonder if there was a specific inspiration for this. And it turns out that this coincides with season nine of Sesame Street, which people older than us, or people who care more about Sesame Street than us, may remember was the trip to Hawaii season uh, where they had several episodes uh, where the gang went to Hawaii, which were filmed on location. So presumably Jim and some of the others got to go to Hawaii too. So I feel like there was a little bit of cross-pollination going in there. The other thing this made me wonder about is when I was growing up, the Limbo song that was played at dances whenever 
the limbo poll came out was the song limbo rock mm-hmm. but presumably the limbo game predates limbo rock and i wonder how many other limbo songs are there what did people limbo to before limbo rock does anyone know <laughs> it's funny because the the one that i immediately associate with i don't think is a limbo song is you know da 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 No, that's a conga. See, yeah, which they do in the middle of this number. They do a conga line. Yeah, it all bleeds together in my head, which is unfortunate. I know that there's a long history to limbo, and I don't want to try to summarize it and get it wrong, but I know that it's associated with the slave trade and associated with death, and it originally was not a game. So again, more layers. So according to Wikipedia, it's a dance that originated as an event that took place at Wakes in Trinidad, and it became popular in America, at least, in the 1950s due to the first lady of limbo, Julia Edwards, and she and her fellow limbo dancers appeared in a number of films and toured all over the country and really helped spread this as like a dance slash game outside of the context of its origin. Mm-hmm. So in the seventies, this was just a fun, casual thing that people had been seeing in the movies for a couple decades. Yeah, and it seems like if it was popularized in the fifties, then at least like for white people in America, "Limbo Rock" may actually be the primary song for this. Like, there may not have been like one song that sort of settled as like the limbo song until then. So just yelling "Everybody Limbo" in a vaguely. Uh, Accent that's supposed to just sound like a funny accent. Like the Muppets in here just sound kind of like the Flying Zucchini Brothers. They're not necessarily doing a Jamaican accent. They're just doing an accent. Not saying this is not offensive. I didn't even necessarily clock it as an accent. But there are so few words to the song. It's the Aldi day. It's very Harry (laughs) Belafonte. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're like yelling encouragement to each other as they limbo under the bar. And then Kermit shows everybody up by squashing himself down. He becomes kind of a two-dimensional Kermit. I think that this whole sketch exists because at some point Jim realized how fun it was to just sort of like pull his hand down while still keeping it in the puppet and thereby squishing Kermit. And doing that as a way to win Limbo seemed like as good a way as any to work that into the show. Yeah, it makes sense to stage this entire number just for the payoff of having to unscrunch Kermit, uh, which Fozzie does by pumping his arm up and down like a carjack. Kermit, do you realize that my mother is in the audience tonight and I wasn't even in the opening number? I don't care. You don't care? Well, why not? Because I'm all scrunched up. You are scrunched up. Hey, hey, but Kermit, you see, my mother... Bozzy, would you unscrunch me? It's a very Looney Tunes moment, and it's fun to see it with puppets. Yeah, it's impressive to see Kermit unscrunch, and then it doesn't seem like Jim's hand ever had to leave the puppet. He just stays alive the whole time. Cool, cool, cool. So as befits having a grand dame of jazz as a a guest star, we, we, we get some jazz. Don't 
This is yeah. It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Music by Duke Ellington. Lyrics supposedly by Irving Mills. This is from 1931. It was originally recorded in 1932. Uh, I, I say supposedly because Irving Mills was Duke Ellington's manager and his business partner. And his contribution is, shall we say, disputed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it's one of those like Beyonce, I was in the room kind of credits. And uh, the phrase, I don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, was apparently the motto of a cornet player named James Bubber Miley, who was a member of Duke Ellington's band, who, who actually died in 1932 at the age of 29, which is sad. But it, uh, this song introduced the word swing into the popular lexicon. Huh. Yeah. Well, I think I've said this before, but I love when the mayhem goes jazzy. And I think that this is just like the perfect meeting of their sound and Cleo Lane's sound. And I just, I love it. I think it makes magic. It's great. It's so great. Another thing that I love about this is that uh, Cleo Lane shouts out the individual members of the band in the middle of the number. You know, it gives me great pleasure to be appearing here with Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem Orchestra. Down those gold records and put them in my teeth. It's called putting your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and here we have the man on bass guitar, the hippest of the hip, Floyd Pepper. Yeah, moving and grooving, Cleo. Right on. I love how fond of them she is. It's like they've been backing her for a whole evening or weeks or months. Yeah. It also just makes us feel more authentic because like you go to a real jazz show and that's what the singer does. Yeah. However, speaking of authenticity, I am pretty sure that the saxophone doesn't go anywhere near Zoot's mouth at the <laughs> shot we have of him playing saxophone. And similarly, the shot of Janice playing guitar feels less convincing, shall we say, than, than we are accustomed to when we see her playing guitar. She's very enthusiastic though. Sure is. Strumming whatever era she's strumming she's not doing much but she's doing it exceptionally well (laughs) (laughs) yes so what i suspect is the number one reason for the disclaimer is this week's uk spot here we go now in tropical climes are certain times of day when all the citizens retire to take their clothes off and perspire it's one of those rules that the greatest fools obey the natives grieve when the white men leave their huts because they're obviously definitely nuts mad dogs and englishmen go out in the midday sun mm-hmm. yep well, here's the thing <laughs> yes the song as written is primarily but not exclusively racist against English people. (laughs) Right. This arrangement, however, sort of dials up the racism against everyone else a little bit (laughs) in ways that I think push it further over the line. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I I think it's not 
meant to be racist. I think it is meant to be mocking of English people. And it was written by an English person. It was written by Noel Coward in the early 1930s. It was written in 1931. It was first performed in a show called The Third Little Show at the Music Box Theater on Broadway uh, by Beatrice Lilly. And it was a signature song for Noel Coward. It appeared in his cabaret act. And he apparently wrote it on a drive uh, from Hanoi to Saigon, claiming he wrote it without pen, paper, or piano. Just, you know sat in the car and you know sang it out sure so you know i mean it's noel coward i'm willing to believe that sure yeah no he he, he was a smart guy good good songwriter like yeah but yeah <laughs> I, don't it's know. A very... I don't know that the, this is the one that i would you know brag yeah made it up in the car <laughs> there are some very clever rhymes and little plays with language in this song and it's a great use of louise gold Yes. Yes. And it's got the gibberish chorus that is supposed to sound like undefined non-English people in assorted places that English people conquered or And that's the part that's not of the original song. That is, to be clear, added by the Muppet Show music staff. Oh, so the most racist part of the song wasn't even Noel Coward's doing. That That's my point. Yes. <laughs> At least the 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 verses that we got. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Right. There, there's. I have a lot of affection for Noel Coward. I am not here to defend British colonialism uh, or the way that he glorified it and uh, any of that. Like, not not defending it at all. Sure, but also it sounds like. But the, the Muppets Muppet made it worse. Yeah, they doubled down. It's also worth noting that uh, the song begins with the first 10 notes of Rural Britannia, which is a thing that I didn't register, but uh, I'm sure would register with uh, an Englishman or a mad dog. Also worth noting that Rolf really rocks a pith helmet. Yeah. Looking snappy. I'd follow him on safari. (laughs) So what is perhaps my favorite musical number of... The entire season so far happens with the most unlikely of Muppet collaborators. It's so great. I love it so much. The minute the like first notes of this started, I like screamed. (laughs) 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 It's so perfect. It's so good. Um, So uh, this is a song called You're Just in Love. It's an Irving Berlin song from the show Call Me Madam, if that title sounds familiar to you. It was a show starring Ethel Merman, not the one involving roofies and time travel. Uh, oh. This is the, the one involving uh, ambassadors. And and time travel? Uh, sadly, no. No, just transatlantic travel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and it was added to uh, punch up the second act of the show uh, when it was floundering in previews. And if the the bit of the song sounds familiar, it's because it appeared in the medley in the Ethel Merman episode, sung by, uh, yes, Uncle Deadly. It's so great. I love it so much. Yeah, I, ha- I have no notes. It's, it is perfect. <laughs> the thing that's important to know is that they are collaborating on making a salad while doing this duet. <laughs> So it is still a cooking sequence. It is still in the chef's kitchen. It's adorable. Yeah. The chef is snapping and grooving along and also throwing vegetables into a bowl and sometimes inadvertently into Cleo Lane's face. (laughs) She tries to grind some pepper into the salad and then the chef just takes the pepper grinder and throws it whole into the bowl. Oh my God. It's so wonderful. It's perfect. It's perfect. (sighs) If the whole episode were that, I, I mean, it would be one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, I just learned something about the Swedish chef I didn't know before. What's that? Cooking is the second worst thing he does. <laughs> Our last number is the aforementioned Bunraku death floating head situation. And when If a girl could be two places at one time, I'd be with you tomorrow and today. Ah, this gorgeous richness in her voice and then this weirdness on screen. This song makes me angry. (laughs) Outside of this context, like it's the song moves like molasses. And it's so manipulative. <laughs> we we had to sing it in high school choir. We sang it in junior high chorus. Ugh. Why yeah. are teenagers singing about, hey, love, if you die, don't worry, I'll die with you or something like that? Is that what it's about? I, I guess. I, could, I couldn't figure it out then. I can barely figure it out now. Uh, so the song is called If. It, w- it was a song by the band bread it was a number four hit for them in 1971 it was written by their frontman david gates it also spent three weeks at number one on the easy listening slash adult contemporary chart and interestingly at the time it was the shortest title to ever hit the top 10 Uh, take that hey won't you play one of those somebody done somebody wrong songs (laughs) (laughs) yeah isn't it wild that they managed to hit the shortest and the longest. Like th- that's Good impressive. What a yeah. great kill. This is, <sighs> it's a drag. So besides everything else that we've said bothers us about this song, it has a truly infuriating rhyme scheme <laughs> where it has rhymes in like the middle of each verse, but then ends on a non-rhyming line. And yep. it just, I, I like. I'm sure. I actually think it's probably like a very clever use of that technique in a way that that leaves you unsettled in a way that the song is supposed to leave you unsettled. But I hate it. Yeah, yeah. I still 
don't know what to make of it. I'm confused and angry. I, I mean, I the the first time I watched it, and the the Boonraku sequence was happening behind Cleo Lane. I was just like, "There's like a portal to hell opening behind her." Like, so, <laughs> <laughs> like there there is some like dark magic happening here. Well, the whole time I'm just staring, and I'm like, "What? What is that?" What is she leaning over? Oh, oh, she's leaning over another puppet. Wait, is that puppet sleeping? Is that puppet dead? Are we looking at a funeral? What is going on here? Yeah, there were a couple of times where the dead puppet moved a little. And I was like, are we in the process of watching him die? Because like, I did I think not, so. I think I did not come prepared to watch a puppet die. <laughs> That's, I didn't sign up for that. I also just can't believe that this is how they choose to end the episode. Like it's such a, it's a, a very definitive note. ending. It, it, is, it is very definitive, but like given just how great it don't mean a thing was that they couldn't like send us out on that kind of a note, but this is also very typical. Like they, they frequently choose sort of the, the bummer song for the end of this show. And I don't know why. And I'm curious if that continues into future seasons. Yeah, it does kind of harken back to the forest of angst or the whatever the land, or even like the Paul Williams like late night piano bar feel. Yeah, yeah. maybe the, it, it's a, a melancholic tendency of the seventies that we just don't understand. This is like the staircase of post mortem despair. Is that what this is? Or it's supposed to be hopeful, right? Because then they both fly away together. Because she died too. I don't know. I can't keep trying to analyze a text that I'm just not going to understand. Yeah. I will say all of Cleo Lane's costumes are great. Mm-hmm. Like she has these like f- sort of like flowing like caftan situations. She's got in the, it don't mean a thing number, this like peach sequined, like scalloped dress with like a flowy capey situation. And a very scooped neckline. Yes. A lot of decolletage going on in her outfit. (laughs) There's a lot to look at with that costume. (laughs) Yeah, and when she's singing with the chef, she's got this... I was trying to figure out, like, is it a a poncho? Does she have sleeves? I'm not sure where different bits of her are. I mean, also, I was watching, like, her perform with the chef and a salad being made, so I didn't really get very far with figuring out what her top was. Yeah, the thing about Cleo Lane is that she's such a, like, a... Sui generous performer and that goes along with her look like she comes on on screen and you're like you are exactly the person that you are and there is not another one of you on the planet (laughs) and i i love it when people like that turn up on the muppet show even when they're given depressing (laughs) japanese death puppet narration to do (laughs) yeah she's doing her best well, now that we've reached the end of our recap, does anyone have final thoughts to share? Just that uh, whatever happened, it wasn't Cleo Lane's fault. Maybe I'll take a yoga class in Pasadena and speak to the true culprit. Ooh. Let us know what you find out. Well, shall we call it a night? Might as well. Certainly wouldn't call it a show. <laughs> accurate clip is accurate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week to find out just how much the Lonely Goat heard as we discuss the Julie Andrews episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. 
Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus, and this episode was edited by me, David Levy. We'll be back next week to find out just how much the Lonely Goat heard as we discuss the Julie Andrews episode. Boo. I don't write this shit. <laughs> it was well, right I there. How could I not? <laughs>